Hello and welcome to the Austrian AI podcast with your usual host, Manuel Pasieka. And today on the show, I have the pleasure to talk to Gillian Augustine. Gillian is currently working as a data scientist in the digital excellence team of the international paper manufacturer Mondi, but has received her PhD in molecular biology. On the show, we are discussing Gillian's experience working in academia and private industry. She's contrasting the mindset prominent on both sides and what is needed to be successful, as well what industry can learn from academia and vice versa. In addition, we briefly discuss different ways how domain experts and data scientists work together most efficiently and how improvements of tooling and software might change this relationship in the future. We end this episode talking about diversity and inclusiveness. Gillian shares with us what it means and how it feels to be part of an underrepresented group, the importance of role models and the intrinsic value of inclusiveness. I hope you will enjoy this episode as much as I did. But before we start, I would like to take a moment for a few pieces of housekeeping. What do you think about the show? Do you have a special guest you want to see on the show? Or a project that you think would be interesting to share? Please send me an email. I'm happy to read your comments and engage with your ideas. That out of the way, let's get back to the interview. So um, hello and welcome, Gillian. It's really nice to have you on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, we're recording this today on the 8th of March, 2021. So it's Women's Day. Um, congratulations, at least that's like from my background. That's what we <laughs> always gave. Um, it's very nice to have you today on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have several things noted down, which I want to talk to you about. Um, but I think maybe it's best if we just start very easily with a short introduction when you can maybe say something about your background, where you're from, um, and how you, let's say, how you moved into data science. That would be great. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm born and raised in the UK. Um, and I studied my bachelor's actually um, at the University of Leeds. So I studied biochemistry um, there. Um, and during this time, I was also a bit in Canada where I studied um, developmental biology. And um, based on my interest in this, I then decided to do a, a PhD um, at the Vienna Biocenter. So this is now why I am in Vienna. Um, And I did my PhD in molecular biology. So that was 2013 to 2018. Um, and after, so towards the end of my PhD, I was pretty sure that I didn't want to stay in academia for various reasons. So um, I, was, I was quite fortunate in the setup of um, how my work was in the team and in the lab that I was able to, alongside this, develop some um, data science skills um such as such as coding for example so when it came to the end of my phd in um 2018 i moved to a1 telecom austria um as a graduate in ai and data analytics um and i worked there for one year in two teams so one was looking into customer insights and another one was um, a more technical network so telecom network analytics team 
Hmm, interesting. Can we maybe just before we move into like the data science part, just for out of curiosity, can you give a short, let's say, a short introduction what you have been doing as part of your PhD for the molecular biology part to like for, for the non-biologist sure. so that, that people know to, to understand a bit what, what you have been doing there and, and, and like what your PhD has been about? Um, sure. So uh, it's been it's been a few years ago, but um, I studied um, a yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and I studied the stress response in yeast. So believe it or not, yeast is um, is is alive, as as you know, when you make bread, for example, um, and it's it's quite similar to human cells and mammalian cells. So I use yeast as a as um, an example of maybe what is going on in stress responses in human cells um, because in human cells when you have stress um, it is linked to many different types of diseases like auto-inflammatory diseases or cancer so I used um, yeast to get a better idea of the basic processes around this um, and I looked to see which genes were necessary um, during um, a stress response and also um, which of these genes um, interacted with which and how they interacted with each other. Mm -hmm. So it was um, a lot of time in the lab um, looking a lot of uh, looking at a lot of data but um, different data to what I'm looking at now. Interesting. I just was about to ask you, so is this a lot of wet lab? So really where you're standing in the lab and you're pipetting and doing really things in the lab or was it a lot more about analyzing data afterwards and having the right methods and the right ways to analyze through those interactions? Um, it was primarily wet lab, to be honest. Um, most of the work was wet lab. The analysis comes at the end. Um, but most of it was in terms of optimizing methods, um, formulating hypotheses and then and then running experiments based on this. Cool, cool. Because I, I find in, in molecular biology, it takes so long to generate the data. Um, so, yeah, this is how I spent most of my time there. Well, there are some similarities, I guess, to some extent in data science, right? People always say uh, that getting the right data, making sure that it has the quality that, it, that you need in order to do a good analysis, takes the majority of the work, right? So I guess it's 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 different, but yeah. I can definitely see some similarities. Um, so we didn't want to interrupt you too much. Uh, you you said that you you after your PhD you moved into data science to move to AI. Uh, sorry, to A one first. Can you maybe talk a bit about this move? So what attracted you from the data science part that you said, okay, um, this is something that you want to to move into and want to 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 work in. Sure. During the PhD time. I've listened to a lot of presentations um, and I like this idea of storytelling. So um, on the campus where I was on a, on a weekly basis, people talk about the work they've done and the stories they tell based on this work. Um, and I, I realized that I'm most enthusiastic about um, finding answers using, so using numbers to find answers and, and sharing this with people. Um, I also must say, I've seen a lot of really boring presentations. So this is where my, um, I, I'm really enthusiastic about visualization and good visualization. Um, 
because I've seen a lot of bad visualizations where, for example, the speaker is saying, here you can clearly see, but it's not clear at all what they are trying to show. Um, so for me, this is really where my interest came in terms of how do we visualize data? How do we understand data? I think that's where my interest really came from. And then um, part of understanding data, I think naturally progresses into the area of data science um, and, and data analytics. Yeah, interesting. It's true that the, the communication part and in order to convince people and to have the right means to, trans, um, to make your message clear, that's definitely a very important part in data science. And um, after you work at A1, you move to Monday, right? Yeah, so I'm currently at Monday. Um, it's an international um, paper and packaging company. So I call it um, one of the biggest companies you've never heard of because they mainly work in the B2B sphere. Um, and um, yeah, they, they, make, um, they make all sorts of packaging that you've probably that you definitely use, for example, Amazon boxes, Ikea boxes, these kind of things. Um, and at Mondi, I'm, I'm primarily focused on operational projects. So working, um, um, working with the people who work in the factories, who work with the industrial machines and helping them um, use their data to improve their processes. Mm -hmm. Nice. And how is it so if you would contrast your work in academia, in, in molecular biology with what you're currently doing, um, can you maybe give us some, some ideas about where you see where there are the similarities, where you see really a strong differences there? And maybe as well can say like, what have you learned, let's say, during your uh, PhD in molecular biology that you can really make, make use of, let's say, as a data scientist now? I think that I think there are a lot of similarities. So when I when I think about how I moved into data science, it was not as challenging as I thought, just because there are so many parallels in how we think in academia. So, for example, when you're working in molecular biology, you're working with really abstract concepts. Um, you are working with things which you cannot see, but ne but um, nevertheless, you see the results of them. I feel this is similar with coding and understanding what is going on behind the scenes. With coding, it's not something you can see, but you also have to understand it and understand kind of which results you expect from this. Um, and I, I think that the way you approach um, STEM research is a very structured way. It's based on what is the data saying? Um, not necessarily what I want, but what is the data saying? What are the, um, what are the conclusions I can make from this data? So I find in that sense, it's very similar um, to, um, to data science as well. And also, for example, one of the parallels which I make the most is when when you're working in the lab. So you're you're literally working on a bench, and you have um, a protocol or so method that you want to employ, and you need to optimize this method. So you need to know exactly how much of which reagents to use to get um, something working. And normally, how you approach this is you you change one thing at a time, and you see does it improve the result? Does it make the result worse 
And this is really a very similar approach to when you do machine learning and your hyperparameter tuning is that you're changing one parameter at a time, seeing if it improves the result as well. So I think this kind of approach also, um, when you look at your results, comparing it to a baseline of some sort, these kind of things we already, um, we do on a daily basis in academia. So I think um, the kind of the approach that we take to problem solving, I think is very similar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In nice. And how is it then? So now that you have the experience from both worlds, doing your PhD in academia and now you have several years as a data scientist in industry, um, what would you say, where would you see like, let's see the parts that both can learn from each other. So what do you think at the moment, like in industry, how, how people uh, are working as a data scientist and your, your colleagues in industry, um, what can they learn from academia and vice versa? So when I think about what industry can learn from academia, I definitely think trusting the experts. I think people have put a lot of time and many years to become experts in their, in their field. And I feel that sometimes this is not trusted as much as possible or as much as it should be. Um, so then there are still many other reasons um, why a project, for example, might get the go ahead or might not get the go ahead. Um, also, just generally the approach of um, of believing that the yeah the people who are working with the data know what they're talking about they they are explaining it to you um and if if you don't understand ask because they can explain um so in that sense i think um this trust in expertise is something that um industry can really learn from academia in terms of what academia can learn from industry this is a good question <laughs> um if i think about One thing I value in, now that I am in industry, I would say it's um, taking time. Things take time. And um, yeah, things take time. Things don't always work, but you have to try them. And mm -hmm. um, I, I feel sometimes in academia, there is such a push to get things out there. And it's, it's so... Um, Molecular biology academia in any way is really, really competitive in a way which is not very productive. Mm -hmm. So I think um, learning this idea of working with other companies that have similar goals, taking time to develop things and, and learn, being open to learn from others um, rather than um, being hyper hyper competitive is, is something I would say which might sound a bit strange seeing as you might expect the industry to be more competitive than academia but it really isn't exactly exactly I was thinking exactly the same so it's interesting because um, I as well worked on both sides and I really have the feeling like as you describe it that it's a bit like there's always the feeling like on the other side um, that that people somehow don't have to perform as much to say as, as as you do as where you are so like the same like in academia sometimes the feeling like it's it's they think it's sometimes maybe it's easier on the other side and then when you, as soon as you move to industry sometimes they think okay 
in, they they don't have clear uh, deadlines and, and things that they have to achieve. But it's definitely in this sense the pressure is there. Interesting. And um, as you said before, right, um, having the experience in academia and, and industry as well, um, can you say something from experience like about the culture in general that you experience now in academia in Austria? Like um, when you think about it, if, uh, can you contrast it with, with previous experience, especially like thinking about the field about data science and artificial intelligence? You mean in terms of... Um kind of the data science space in Austria compared to outside Austria? For example, yes. Yeah. Um, I think, um, so as I mentioned before, I'm from the UK. So this is kind of, in a way, it's kind of been my reference a lot, but also um, a lot of stuff which is being done in tech. Um, I'm, I'm a user of Twitter and a lot of that, the Twitter sphere is very US based as well. Um, and when when I contrast, so I, my experience is mainly in, in larger companies. So I've worked for two very big companies right now. And I would say it's, there is definitely a hesitancy. I think companies tend to be quite hesitant to, to try new things. Um, and I, I don't know why that is, but I, have I have a theory that like the when you have um, an environment which is not super competitive so I don't I don't consider Austria to be a highly competitive environment when I compare to other countries in Europe or across the world mm -hmm. I think then there is less pressure to try something new um, you, you can kind of coast along quite nicely so in that sense, I think there is a lot of talent in, in Austria in data science, but I, I do feel it's um, maybe a bit difficult for the data scientists and the AI experts to really show their worth in companies because that requires some sort of trust, I would say. Mm -hmm. So you mean that I think it's similar, as, as you mentioned before, when I understood it correctly, comparing industry and academia, when you talk about this type of trust, you mean that they that there's the freedom to do more kind of exploratory type of, of projects to, to see like where the capabilities of AI can be applied in the specific business cases to, to find new things um, that the business can focus on or? Yeah. So um, for example, I think if you are, If you are the market leader in something, there's less pressure to try something new. You can always say, yeah, we've been doing this for however many years and, and we are the market leader. Whereas I think if there is more competition, you never know at any moment in time, you might lose your edge. So I think you are more, it drives companies more to, to try new things and to try new technologies to either keep the edge or to, to move up in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. I understand. Yeah, I mean that's as you said, right? It's unfortunate if you cannot, if you don't make use of the, all the potential that you have in the country. And um, I definitely hope things like this are going to improve in Austria as well. But as you said, I, I think as well there's there's a huge talent and and there's a lot of influx actually from from my experience from other surrounding countries. Um, I think it would be great if there would be more openness to 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 explore and to be to be willing. To, to try more risky projects.
projects as well, because I've been talking to several people in the past about this topic, actually. And there seems to be a very strong culture of, let's say, we're only going to invest into a project if there's already a clear picture about where things should be heading. And uh, if you can see, let's say, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, or you would not enter into a dark hole, let's say, knowing that you might not get out of it. Um, but uh, as you mentioned, I think this is actually something that seems to be much stronger in the States, where you're willing to say, okay, you risk it, you're going to invest, you're going to support 10 projects, maybe only one of them is going to be successful, but it's going to be a big hit. And similar as you describe it, I have the feeling in Austria, it's much more like you really, only if you know that this is really, this, this has a strong potential future, then you're really going to invest time and resources into it. Yeah, I, I, as you say that, I just think maybe that's another thing that industry can learn from academia is getting used to failing because mm -hmm. in academia you try so many things and they fail but it's it's all something that you can learn to um to move on and be better so i i do admire that about academia and i think as you say um this idea that something has to bring a financial benefit within the next two years otherwise you're not going to start it i don't think that's kind of the approach you can take when it comes to um digitalizing process or processes or using new technologies hmm. yeah sometimes you just have to do it <laughs> that is true then maybe like let's slightly move to another topic that i wanted to talk with you about is a bit um and it has something to do about let's say a bit the difference between domain experts working with data scientists or moving in data to data scientists and on the other side like data scientists learning a specific domain because i can imagine that like if your experience you have seen both and for me it's a bit from from your perspective where do you, how do you see things working like where do you see the biggest success if there are like domain experts that acquire skills from data science and apply them in their domain or if you see like some data scientist with a background in computer science for example in similar fields they acquire domain specific knowledge and then they 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 work is can you can you can trust mm -hmm. let's say these two approaches a bit yeah so i'm i'm definitely a fan of multidisciplinary team so in in my perfect team you have someone who has really extensive domain knowledge and then you have um computer scientists data scientists who do not have machine sorry, do not have domain knowledge at all. Um, and actually bringing these two together is what brings out a really good result in the end. But I understand that in reality, for example, there are many companies who just do not have the capacity to hire more people with those data science skills. So I'm also really a fan of um, people with domain knowledge who get to understand data more. I think everyone pretty much should get more proficient in handling data, even, even if they don't use it on a regular basis. Um, but, but for me, I, I really do see that you need, even as a data scientist, for example, if we look at a data science pipeline, you can have ETL, which um, from from relational databases, you can have machine learning, you can have front-end dis display of the results. Like this, this involves so many different skills. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think actually it, you get the best result when you get people who are specialized in their area working together. 
rather than having one person who's trying to cover everything. That's my, um, yeah, that's my take on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Definitely. If you have you said, right, if if the company has the budget at the scale that they can really bring all these experts together from different fields and make them work together, um, that makes a lot of sense. I, I just raised this topic because like it has been come up in the past as well in a previous interview with, with Frank Fichtemüller, for example, where we're discussing, let's say, the future of data science and how data science would look like. Um, and I personally um, have had this experience. Do you know by any chance Fast AI? Fast AI is a, is a, is a course and a framework by Jeremy Howard. And um, he, for example, he, he has the subtitle of his Making Neural Nets Uncool Again. And for example, he has the very strong push. He wants to make... Um, make it possible for domain uh, experts to in a very short time to something like crash courses and give them everything that they need and all the tools in their hands that they can they can apply all the knowledge and directly make use let's say of data of, of data science or make use of artificial intelligence to apply them to the specific project because he believes that um that is the best way that you can help and that you can make use of the advancements that we have. And um, exactly for that reason, I it's to me, it's very interesting to see how the data science as a field in general moves. And um, if we are going to be seeing more and more domain experts, giving them the right tools, giving them a basic understanding of what has to be done and then just letting them do, let's say, exploit by themselves and provide them with the infrastructure. Or if, if as it has been happening in the past, they are more like specific um, data scientists with, with computer science background that then learn the domain expertise. Yeah, I, I'm when I hear about domain experts given the tools to um, kind of do data science, I do think I th I think there are many no code or low code solutions which are great for developing initial prototypes, for example. But um, one thing which worries me in this sense, and this is this really isn't me trying to keep a job, <laughs> but one thing which worries me is there are some foundational statistical assumptions, for example, that you need for certain methods. And this is why data science or machine learning or um, statistics are fields in their own right. And if you if you if your data does not fulfill these assumptions, then the conclusions that you're going to get out are not going to be valid. Although it's possible to give um, a a built um, kind of user interface for someone to um, to develop these models, I do worry that the quality of the models um, on a fundamental level is going to reduce. Um, there are some things that you can that people who are domain experts can learn but yeah I, I do think that the field of data science in itself is um, an area of expertise that cannot be filled without becoming an expert in data science um, but one thing I do like about such solutions like these um, low-code solutions is that a lot of the work that data scientists do is really really repetitive and we don't need to be coding every line. So I would love if I could make a wish to whoever is listening, I would love an automatic code generator where I just drag and drop and point and click. And in the end, I get out a Python script, which I can then um, modify directly 
to really custom customize it to what I want to do. Um, but yeah, I, I feel this is where the power of um, like no code solution comes in rather than um, having people without the data science background um, trying to make them or trying to let them do data science, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I was thinking in, in this direction more like doing a bit of democratization of, 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 of machine learning in the sense in data science. So I completely see your point that obviously um, it's important that someone with the statistical understanding of what can be done uh, looks into what, let's say, a domain expert is, is producing. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. I was thinking like one possible way would be, as you described, with local and no, no code tools that maybe you, you give the domain experts the possibilities to explore by themselves. So they can they can, they can do exploratory type of projects and uh, let's say if they find something, then they obviously then there should be someone who has a good understanding of how, what can be done with those models, what can be done with those with the data, and then let's say in cooperation then with someone like a, a traditional type of data scientist, I think then a project has to move forward and can move forward, right? And then in addition to like um, to this type of primary ex, uh, um, results, I guess if you really want to at some point put it in something like a production, you anyways need like uh, someone who has a good understanding of like um, software development and other kind of and ML ops and DevOps in order to really bring this to, to, to good use. Yeah, I think this is a, a really good example um, that you mentioned. And I definitely think, I think um, the domain experts have so many ideas and they have so many good ideas. I definitely think it's worth allowing people to um, play around and um, test the different ideas that they want to want to do and and I I think this also allows the domain experts to, to have some ownership over what they produce and then it means that whatever results from it is going to be a lot more accepted because it doesn't feel like some solution that somebody else made and just pushed onto you but then again as you said I definitely think I kind of see the domain experts as creating a rough draft of what they want. So spending the time to, to kind of make a mock-up or a prototype, and then you get the data scientists and the software engineers in there to really make it a robust um, piece of software, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true, true, very true. Um, then let's maybe make a really strong shift to something that's completely different, but there's something that I understand it is very close to your heart and it's a bit like diversity and inclusiveness. So we talked about it off mic. Uh, I know that you actually put quite some effort into your webpage and your homepage, your personal one, uh, making it sure that it's accessible for people with different kind of disabilities and make it possible that everyone can enjoy this. Um, and I think actually it's really nice that you, let's say, you're not only talking about diversity, but you're really doing something. You really try to, to make it work. And um, you mentioned before off mic that there's always a bit like uh, this, um, this pressure as being like, let's say, a woman of color in data science, where, where people always want you to talk about being a woman and being of color, and you want to talk about tech. So um, I hope this is no problem here. And But can you maybe tell our audience what is important for you and what does inclusiveness really mean to you? Sure. Um, so for me, 
inclusion is is really about making people feel welcome. And I think when people feel welcome, um, if we look think about it in a in a job context or in a working context, then people can really bring their best and they can really perform their best. So I think um, inclusion in this sense just means um, being welcome. I think um, there are only positives to this because when everyone is welcome, then the playing field is equal and then you choose the best people. But you cannot say you're choosing the best people if the playing field is not equal, <laughs> if you're only choosing from a select um, a group of people. Well, I just find it essential, but one one task, as you mentioned, one project I'm doing is to create my own website. So um, I make no no statement that it is the most beautiful thing in the world, but as I'm doing it, I'm learning. And one thing that I, um, I learned during the development of this website was developing something for people who are visually impaired. So it, I think it's really good, actually, how... I was using a web browser and when you select colors on the web browser, um, so you kind of have this color palette and as you select each color, it tells you what is the contrast rating to the background color. It tells you is the font, is the font big enough um, and these kind of things. And for me, this is, this is really interesting. It's really important. And I think if you can, if you can do things like this to make your content more inclusive, it really opens it up a lot more, um, and it's not actually it's not actually that difficult. So, for example, there is it's something that you have to think about carefully. So, I I really like visualizations as well, and it's something that you have to think about. But, for example, using more than one way to signify a change. So, not only showing something in um, in colors, but also showing it like a dashed line or not a dashed line as well. Um, so in, in my head, generally when I do my work, I'm I'm always got this in my head of how can I make sure it's as inclusive as possible. If it's something that I'm learning myself, I cannot guarantee it, but I'm always open for feedback on that. That's good. That's good. And from your experience, as you said, like um, once you get into it, once you you really pay attention to those things, um, they they are not so difficult to really then do. Um, so, for example, one thing I read recently is setting a language attribute when you create an HTML page, so that the screen reader knows which language to to use when reading this page. Or, for example, using headings. Um, so H1, H2, H3, etc. This is probably something that we should be doing anyway, to be honest. So even if you don't have a visual impairment, the way you are displaying information on a page probably should be separated in sections in some way. So um, th this is why I think um, one thing about inclusion is that not only are people who you are targeting are going to have a better experience so not only visually impaired people but um in general it's going to be an overall reading experience mm -hmm. so um yeah i don't really see it as a situation where you can lose to be honest 
Yeah, I must say I have the feeling like this sounds a bit like like how much value and how what kind of priority you put in when you're developing a web page, for example. I personally have the feeling that nowadays I see the the focus is much more to make sure that the website looks nice on a mobile device and can be like on the different mobile devices, different screen sizes look like, rather than how it would be perceived by someone with, with visual impairness. But I, I definitely hope that, that, that people hearing your message and there are other people that share your experience that are much more into web development and, and they think similarly. Um, but maybe one thing that you touched upon before when you were talking about like diversity um, in, in the job market in, in, from the business perspective and something that you mentioned, because I was thinking, um, so what do you think about, let's say, in a business perspective, I have the feeling often it's when it when it's something, when it's talked about diversity, it's diversity is seen as a means to an end to improve your product or get to sell things better but um at the same time as you mentioned it for you it's like it's an end in itself right you do do you see um how much do you do you see like a conflict there and how much do you say for you it doesn't matter uh, how we achieve it if people just want diversity in order to have like a better product or if, if it makes a difference for you it, it's it's interesting um because there are so many um different um, pieces of evidence which show that having diverse teams um, results in, for example, better products or more productivity. But I can almost see it in a bit insulting in a way, like you you only want me on this team because I'm going to make your product better. Yeah, it, it, it's strange in a way like that. Um, it kind of assumes that that's where, where the value is, whereas as, as a, a, a person, a member of so many marginalized groups myself, I just want to be included, you know? Um, and um, if you if you think of it in the way that, um, for example, if you take a primarily white and male group of people, maybe you add another white male person and they don't improve the production of the team. That's okay. And therefore, you should be able to also add a non-white, non-male person who also doesn't necessarily exponentially boost the production of the team. But it's just good to have them there, you know. Um, I don't. I'm not such a fan actually of attributing my value personally to what you can learn from me. I, I kind of see it as just fundamentally right that everyone should have the opportunity to do these things mm -hmm. yeah i'm definitely with you with this one yeah that is true i always found it very weird when, when people were describing it as you said right it's it sounds very much like this means to an end you just want to have the best product and and you know in order to get the best product it should be don't know enough 50 percent women and 50 percent men it should be of kind of minorities but it as you said it didn't feel like it was really because we value the diversity but it was much more like we want to have the best results doesn't matter how and if it's diversity then it's diversity and if it would be all clones then it would be all clones right so um i'm definitely there with you 
I have one more question on this one, which I which was 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 when I came up and I was actually listening to your to talk that you gave um, for the tech makers, women tech makers, two thousand nineteen, from test tubes to data lake, and I will include it in uh, in the references. So you talked about the role models. You talked about, for example, when you were a child, that when you, when you were thinking, what would you want to become when you grow up? And you talked that you want the first one be a supermarket checkout, and then you wanted to move into travel agency. Uh, to be working in a travel agency. So I was wondering when you think about yourself now, so um, how much do you see yourself as a role model now for young girls being, let's say, thinking about what they want to become? And when you think about it, how much of a, how much of pressure is it on how much of a motivation is it for you? It's, it's a good question. So thank you for thinking that I might be a role model. I'm going to take it as a compliment. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So recently I, I've, I've been contacted by some people on, on LinkedIn um, and on Twitter. I could really feel from the, you can kind of read between the lines of what they're saying. And I could, I could feel that they were looking up to me and I could see that they kind of saw me as a role model. And to be honest, this means this means way more to me than the other messages that I get from somebody who is who is not, yeah, who who doesn't write that way. And I'm not saying that everyone should look up to me, but it's just it it really is is really nice to see that, um, and it's really nice to to see that I'm motivating people. So it's primarily um, women of color. Um, in the in the Caribbean, in the US, um, in Africa as well, and I I really love it. Um, I've not seen so in in this talk where um, for women tech makers, I talk about Dr. May Jemison, who I think is amazing because she's um, she's done so many different things, and she's really kind of one of the few Black women who is a role model in terms of getting things done and and really being an expert in their field. Um, so I, I really love it. And I just hope that I know there are many of women like me actually, like now. Um, so black women in tech who are doing really great things is still nevertheless doesn't mean that representation doesn't matter because it matters so much. And it's really difficult to to imagine what it's like if you've always been represented. Um, but yeah, as, um, just as a brief um, mention is, if, if I remember back to my talk, which I, I gave, is that when I was younger, I wanted to be the checkout person or a travel agent because these were the only two jobs that I really knew existed. Um, whereas James, James Dyson gave an interview not so long ago and said, um, I think the question was, your family is from, has a history in academia in the humanities. Did you ever think that you could not become an engineer? And he is like, no, of course I could become an engineer. Um, so yeah, it matters so much. And I'm really happy to be part of that. I'm, I'm really happy to show that I'm a person um, I'm a, I'm not a, a superhero. I'm just a person with skills who's being given the opportunities to show them. And I really hope that other people like me 
also um, can be given the opportunity to show their skills too. Nice. Well, that's good. Um, maybe I want to move slowly to the end of the of the interview and um, sticking to 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 what you said, right, about young people and being an inspiration to young people and as a role model. Do you have maybe some tips for people moving into data science and maybe like being, as you said, right, coming from a similar background as well? A tip that I would give for data science is if you are curious, then do it. Something which I think gets dampened a bit much is natural curiosity. And um, yeah, you're curious, you have an interest in it, you can do it. Um, there are a lot of people who, um, for whatever reason, might try and convince you that you can't. Um, but um, yeah, do what you want to do. And if you want to do it, talk to people, reach out. People are, are very friendly and welcoming in terms of. Um, helping you a lot of the time if someone's not so welcoming move on move to somebody else <laughs> um and um yeah I, I really think that it's possible um if if you want to really go somewhere there are people there to help you nice that's a that's a really nice message um well thank you very much still for coming on to the interview it was it was a pleasure to have you thank you Good luck with your presentation that you're going to have at the end of the day. Women's in Data Science, Central Eastern Europe. I'm going to definitely post a link in the description of the show. Thank you.